and welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm your host, Annie Galvin. I'm the associate editor at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that's free and online. So this is the finale of our first season, which has been about the internet. If you've been listening since the beginning, then I am so grateful for your time and attention. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, then be sure to check out the five previous episodes that we've put out as they all build on each other in a nice arc. We really hope that after listening to this season, you'll take these conversations out into your own lives and that you'll continue to discuss these important issues with your friends, family members, colleagues, book group, internet friends, and maybe your students, if you're a teacher. I think we've learned that the internet has come to play such an instrumental role in how society and culture and politics and the economy work now. And I really hope that we can all keep learning and talking to each other about these issues, you know, as we try to create a just and fair world. To help you keep those conversations going, I've written up discussion questions to accompany each episode of the podcast. So I hope that these guiding questions can help you keep this conversation going in your own lives. You can find a link to the internet reading list and discussion questions in the show notes to this episode and at publicbooks.org slash podcast. Okay, so back to this episode. As we conclude this series, I wanted to zoom out a little bit to look backward in history and forward to the future. We have two incredible guests here to help us understand how Silicon Valley developed from a sleepy, agricultural corner of Northern California into the historically and globally significant technology hub that it is today. My name is Meredith Broussard. I'm a data journalism professor at NYU, and I'm the author of a book called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. I'm Margaret O'Meara. I'm a professor of history at the University of Washington, and my most recent book is a history of Silicon Valley titled The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. What can we learn from Silicon Valley's history as we strive to develop more equitable technologies for the future? And in a historical moment when many people look to new technologies to solve our human problems, how might we recognize the limits of what technology can do? and put humans back into the equation. The first question that I'll ask is a question that we're asking all of our guests, and that is, what does spending time on the internet in 2020 feel like to you? I think that today, being on the internet feels really uncomfortable. I have one of those laptops that has the butterfly keyboard that's really hard. Mm. <laughs> and so since COVID, I've been spending so much time online that my hands hurt. Mm. And it reminds me that the physicality of using the internet is something that designers don't always take into account. Uh, when people imagined, oh, we're going to go into this digital utopia where everybody's going to do everything online all the time, it actually turns out that human bodies are not built for that. That is interesting. That's an interesting way to think about it. How about you, Margaret? 
Well, you know, I've, my thought was actually that related to Meredith, which is that the human mind is not built for the internet as it is today. You know, I, again and again, I think, gosh, Alvin Toffler was right. He was the futurist who wrote the number of books, one of which bestsellers, Future Shock, was came out in 1970, and he coined the term information overload. And that's really what we're all working under. And especially, we thought it was bad before 2020, and now right. it's grown exponentially. Um, and I also think a lot about how this compares to other moments of crisis and also how media mediates crisis. I talk to my students a lot mm -hmm. about, you know, early print culture and early America and how you had all these broadsheets and newspapers that had all sorts of telling you all sorts of things and partisan slants and fake news. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, th th we have seen some parallel moments where mm -hmm. new media hits and, and people have to process it. But we didn't have the algorithmic precision and the incredibly effective tools of engagement and addiction that today's internet exhibits. So in that way, it is quite different. Yeah, thank you. That was really interesting. And I think it's really great to sometimes put this in historical perspective because I think that we have these biases toward thinking, you know, the internet is this new thing that came out of nowhere and everything is new, but it's really useful to have a historian who can sort of say, well, we've been here before, you know, with with print culture, with radio, with TV. So I appreciate that. Um, and so I'm sure that work that both of you have done across different domains will come up today, but to give our listeners some context, it would really help to hear a little bit about the two books that you each mentioned in your bios. So maybe we can start with Margaret. So you published in 2019 a book that you mentioned called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. So what is The Code about? It's about 500 pages, so it's about <laughs> a lot. But if you could give us kind of a brief synopsis, that would be great. Well, the way I like to characterize it is it's a biography of a place. Hmm. Right. So when it comes to the tech industry, we have biographies of people, we have biographies of companies, and there really wasn't one single volume that put everything together and showed the evolution of Silicon Valley, how it hmm. came to be, why it is where it is, why it is the way it is. And, and I think it's really important right now. Uh, we are operating in a world where the products and uh, platforms that come out of mostly five large companies on the West Coast <laughs> are, yeah. are, are inextricable parts of our days. That even if you decide you want to delete Facebook or live a very analog life, it is very, very difficult to, mm. to live in modern America or live in most parts of the world without being touched by these products. And I, and I think that makes it very important to understand how not only these companies came to be, but the whole ecosystem of tech, the mindset and how it's connected to politics and society and things that, you know, tech likes to present itself as something different and these right. capitalist cowboys out separate from everything else. And actually, they're very much a product of modern America. So I wanted to tell that story. Meredith, in 2018, you published a book called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. So could you give us a little synopsis or summary of your book? Sure. The book is about the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. So I come to this as a data journalist. Data journalism is the practice of finding stories in numbers and using numbers to tell stories. Uh, the particular kind of data journalism that I do is something called algorithmic accountability reporting. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, algorithms are being used to make decisions on our behalf. And the traditional function of the press is to hold decision makers accountable. Well, we actually need to do the same thing for algorithms. We need to hold the algorithms and their creators accountable. So 
in my work, uh, I actually build artificial intelligence tools in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. So in the book, I go through a little bit about what AI is and what it isn't. I take readers through some examples of data journalism, of algorithmic accountability reporting. Uh, and I also do a little bit of history of how we got to a concept that I call techno chauvinism, which is a concept that is underlying a lot of the marketing around mm. technology nowadays. Mm. Uh, techno chauvinism is a kind of bias that says that technology or technological solutions are better than other solutions. And what I argue is that it's not a competition. We should be thinking about what is the right tool for the task? Sometimes mm -hmm. the right tool for the task is a computer. Sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child on its parent's lap. I love the idea of um, algorithmic accountability. That's such a just, I'm really glad that that's happening. I'll just say that. But I'm wondering what's an example of an algorithm that you've found that needs a little bit of accountability? One of the amazing resources for learning more about algorithmic accountability is a new newsroom called The Markup. It's run mm. by Julia Anglin, who used to be at ProPublica. And Julia Anglin's reporting really kicked off the entire field of algorithmic accountability. Mm. When she was at ProPublica, she did an investigation into the Compass algorithm which mm. is an algorithm that was used to assign a recidivism score mm. uh, to people who were arrested. So it basically rated people on how likely they were to commit another crime. Then these scores were given to judges and the judges would use the score in uh, deciding what kind of sentence the person got, whether they got bail, you know, basically like affecting the person's uh, passage through the judicial system. Now, the Compass algorithm is biased toward white people. Mm -hmm. It is biased against black people. Mm -hmm. And subsequent, subsequent to Julia's investigation, mathematicians went in and I validated her results and said, well, actually, mathematically, there's no way for this algorithm to treat white defendants and mm -hmm. black defendants fairly. So this was a big scandal, obviously, yeah. and it kicked off the entire field of reporting on algorithms and saying, is this fair? Is this just? Should we be doing this? Right. And this will certainly come up, but I think one really interesting thing that you bring to these discussions, Meredith, is that you have a background as a, a software correct me if I have these terms wrong, but like a, so a computer programmer, or software designer. So you're kind of able to look actually into the technology and you really take the reader on a journey, not just through kind of the world of tech that we as users and consumers experience, but what is actually going on in the hardware and the software. And so I really learned a lot from your book, just from kind of getting that inside perspective. Did I get oh, those so terms that. right? Or Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that I actually, so I, I started my yeah. career as a computer scientist and I quit okay. to become a journalist. Uh, I quit computer science because of all the textbook reasons you hear about why black women leave STEM careers. Mm, like yeah. All those things that they say, they're all true. 
but I kind of came back to computer science through journalism. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that I do is I can kind of look at a technical system and take it apart in my head. Like I can tell you, oh, this is how right. this works. This is what it's doing. This is what it's not doing. And these are the potential problems with the system. And I have to interject yeah, with, a, with a note of there are so many amazing things about Meredith's book. But one of the things that is really great about it is there's a chapter in there where you, I think you begin, Meredith, by saying, hey, if you already know all about how coding works, just skip through to the next thing. <laughs> but if you don't understand, then here's how this comes together. And it's one of the most beautiful, elegantly simple descriptions of sort of helping the non-technical reader understand what it means to write code. And um, it's invaluable. It's it's really, really terrific. And I t give it to my students and it is very helpful <laughs> to me. So thank you, Meredith. <laughs> oh, Margaret, thank you so much. That means a lot. Um, yeah. I will also say that uh, we are definitely in a mutual fan club situation here. <laughs> I love that, um, yeah. I recommend the code to absolutely everybody I meet. Uh, and one of the things that I love about the way that, uh, that you write history, Margaret, is that you write women and people of color into the story. And until I saw how elegantly you did it, I didn't realize like how much I missed having women and people of color as part of the mainstream historical narrative. Like, I didn't realize how accustomed I was to like reading, you know, reading history and then reading a different book about, you know, say a black woman and her place in history. And so yours was really revolutionary to me in kind of bringing together the history of different kinds of people and writing that into the narrative of Silicon Valley. And I loved it. Thank you so much. That means a lot. I appreciate it. This is so wonderful. I love to hear that. Um, one reason why I'm really excited to have both of you here is that in your work, I think you both do a really interesting job of kind of acknowledging some of the myths really that have grown up around, um, you know, around technology itself in Meredith's case and around Silicon Valley as this place, but also kind of an idea, something even beyond a place in Margaret's. And, you know, myths are myths for a reason, but they're also maybe not totally squared up with reality. And so I'm really interested in both of your work for that reason. And so in order to get into this, which I realize sounds a little bit abstract, I thought we could start with a pretty concrete example. And I was interested to see that the self-driving car comes up in both of your books. And it strikes me that the self driving car is something that has a kind of symbolic resonance, right? It always feels like kind of the next frontier. It's very kind of Jetsons, you know, um, in terms of technology. And But it's also a, a hardcore, like, material reality. It's a technology that's being built. So I'm curious, maybe we can start with Meredith. I'm curious about what do you think that the driverless car signifies in a kind of symbolic sense? But then what is actually happening with the driverless car as an actual technology that's currently being built. Uh, so in the book, I tell the story of going for a ride in a very, very early self-driving car. Self-driving cars were uh, developed initially as part of a DARPA initiative, a grand challenge, where they had a race through the desert where a bunch of teams from universities developed self-driving cars they got lots of donations from corporations and they had this 
robot car race through the desert. And it was just as much of a disaster as you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and that really kickstarted the development of self-driving car industry. Right. Uh, so I rode in one of these cars before it was in the Grand Challenge. And it was terrifying. I almost died in right. this car. And I thought to myself, I don't trust these engineers to build something that is going to be safe. I, I kind of thought at the time, all right, this is never going to work and I'm just going to ignore this. Fast forward a couple of years, we've got Tesla making claims that they've got self-driving and I decided, all right, I'm going to go look into this. Maybe the technology is advanced more than I thought. And it had not. Uh, what you can do is you can actually read the code online. Uh, a lot of uh, self-driving car technology has been open sourced. So you can go in and you can read what's going on inside the code. Mm. And one of the things that I discovered was that the images that the uh, computer vision is being trained on are very limited. Mm. So. Lots of people talking about the trolley problem with self-driving cars, about, oh, the car is going down the road and can either hit one person or three people and, you know, which one is ethically preferable. Something I'm actually more worried about is what the car vision technology counts as human or who hmm. counts as human. Hmm. Because the vision technology that's inside self-driving cars is the same type of vision technology that's in facial recognition systems, mm. which are really good at recognizing people with light skin, are really bad at recognizing people with dark skin. Mm. You see yeah. this everywhere. You see this in soap dispensers. You see it in video game systems. Right. So I'm really worried that self-driving cars only recognize able-bodied people with mm. light skin as human right. and people who are not able-bodied or people who have darker skin are not going to be recognized as human and are going to be killed at a higher rate. Mm. And I think that's terrible. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense when you think about that vision technology as well. And and what we already know that it does in other contexts um, being applied in a context that is so high stakes, the highest stakes in a sense. So Margaret, the code is this just incredibly expansive, detailed, sort of beautiful history of Silicon Valley. And I was struck that toward the end, you you kind of give this, you set the scene of a self-driving car as well. And so I'm wondering how you would respond to that question too. What do you think in the context of what you learned through your research, what is what does the self-driving car sort of represent and what, and how does that square with the realities that Meredith is talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the self-driving car kind of captures so much of what is marvelous and what is terrifying about tech. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, look, it is the kind of the, the the components of it are are all of the sort of product of of people pushing the boundaries of technological possibility and feeling like they can. But it also is kind of has this science fiction mentality that once we have this technology, all these other things are going to fall into place. And actually, it's a much more complicated, thornier, wicked, real-world problem that doesn't just involve technology. It also involves public policy. It involves um, you know, thinking about these are not just robot cars rolling through the desert. 
they're going to be rolling through urban spaces, mm. the spaces that are already designed and built. And so what does that entail? How do you redesign them? And we have had these sort of fantastic techno-optimistic visions of of whole city rebuilding before. Mm. Think about the middle of the 20th century and the sort of grand visions for what a, a city of the future would look like, which was um, involved multi-lane highways, among other things, which, you know, yes, enabled more rapid auto transportation than the roads that preceded them, but they also plowed through cities, destroyed neighborhoods, had very disruptive effects, not to mention the environmental effects. Mm. So even if you had a technology that was working, as Meredith points out, you know, those people who are confidently saying, well, in five years, we're going to have 10 years, all this is going to happen. Y'all, do you know, all the truck drivers will go away. Mm, Okay. But even, you know, even if you said this is going to work, then you have the larger the larger landscape. And and then getting to the basic question of, are cars what we need to be building? Right. You know, I would love all of that creative energy to be devoted to getting rid of the internal combustion engine. <laughs> I mean, it's a different, yeah. again, a different technology. Right. But nonetheless, it's so interesting to me that the idea is we shall, you know, we shall improve all these things by making the car better. It's, it's being conducted in a way that's absent a uh, real understanding of other ways to Move a better way to move people through space, or the better way to arrange spaces in order for people to live live in them in a sustainable fashion. Right, right. Because it's it's worth acknowledging that you know proponents of the self driving car, as I know Meredith points out in her book, you know they will say, well, traffic accidents are a huge problem, and we can probably all agree on that. You know, we want to have fewer of them, right? But why is it that we're focusing on this one thing as opposed to these? other ideas outside of the tech itself. Um, So Meredith, you mentioned your term techno chauvinism, and I think that's just such an interesting and useful term, right? The belief that essentially, right, machines are, are sort of more capable than humans in some ways. And I think maybe in a sense that can sound a little bit abstract. And I'm wondering, why is it important for just kind of everyday users of tech to understand that term and to kind of maybe push back against it? I think it's important to push back against techno-chauvinism because a kind of blind belief in technology has become the default. Mm. And it no longer serves us well to have that be the default. In Mm. fact, it's a kind of dangerous bias. One of the things that I've noticed is that people think that innovation is the same as using more technology. Hmm. And that is not at all true, right? You can be innovative without just using more computers. There was a period of time when, yes, we did need to innovate by integrating computers into a lot of aspects of life. You know, there was definitely a cause for that at the beginning of the digital revolution. Uh, But technology itself is actually no longer in and of itself innovative. Like we are two decades into the digital revolution now. Right. The internet is not the cool new thing anymore. (laughs) Yeah. It's just mainstream. Right. So in journalism, for example, people uh, people sometimes still talk about, oh, such and such media organization is, you know, doing a bad job of navigating the turn to the digital. And I hear that and I think, 
who on <laughs> earth is there out yeah. there who has not already navigated the turn to the digital? Mm. And I'm wondering what might be an example of that kind of a problem where it might seem like a technology, a technological innovation would be the solution, but the problem has kind of been solved more productively in another way. I think that we are going to be grappling with this in the fall of 2020 as Mm. uh, lots of schools are trying to figure out how to cope with online learning and COVID for the long term. One of the things that I read about in the book is I... Tech is about textbook shortages in Philadelphia right. public schools. Uh, now, many, many schools have invested in uh, getting kids one-to-one laptop programs and getting kids iPads in doing uh, you know, electronic books and trying to integrate this into the classroom. And it just hasn't worked for a really long time, in part because kids break things. They drop their iPads, they leave them places. Uh, The digital divide is still really profound. Lots of places don't have sufficient wireless connectivity. But you know what doesn't break when you drop it? A book. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right? A physical book. You can drop it in a puddle. You can put it in a backpack and then the kid like slings the backpack down and clunks it and like shakes the (laughs) entire house because the backpack is so heavy. But the book is really sturdy. And devices don't have the same sturdiness. Right. And so they're not necessarily as well suited. Right. And they're also far more expensive than people realize. So the infrastructure needed to support online learning is dramatically more expensive than the infrastructure needed to, you know, to support like mailing a bunch of books to a bunch of kids. Right. And I think it's easy to forget that the book itself, the print codex is a technology. You know, I think we have this bias toward only circumscribing technology as things that feel new and, you know, wizardly and everything. But the book is, you know, it was invented and built and developed in a similar way. It's just, it's not as, at this point, not as sexy and exciting as, you know, the the newest shiny thing. So that's interesting. Oh, it's definitely not as, it's not as sexy. <laughs> uh, I will absolutely cop to that. There is very we little might have some sexy about a textbook. Book. books who would disagree, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in general, no. <laughs> this podcast is a production of Public Books, a free online magazine where scholars, critics, and activists make the life of the mind a public good. I'm Jess Ingebretson, the Editorial Fellow. If you're enjoying this episode, I'd recommend the public books essay Gig Authoritarians by Maya Vinokur, a scholar of Russian and Slavic studies. The essay asks where the gig economy is leading us. Will Google, Uber, and TaskRabbit become our new authoritarian overlords? Not necessarily, says Maya. Her essay argues that in the fight to reclaim work, imagination is a potent weapon. You can find this and other relevant reads at publicbooks.org slash podcast. Okay, back to the show. And Margaret, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as someone who's studied Silicon Valley so extensively, where do you think that that belief in techno chauvinism, to use Meredith's term, where do you think that might have come from? I realize that's kind of a big question, but what are some of the kind of historical roots maybe um, of that belief, how did it start kind of germinating into the into what it is now? 
Yeah, I think it has. I think techno chauvinism has very deep roots, uh, and and is very much a product of the time and place. Silicon mm-hmm. Valley is a product of Cold War America. The the valley itself turned from being a chiefly agricultural sleepy valley in Northern California into an electronics hub, courtesy of Cold War defense spending. The money that flowed into defense contractors and notably into universities, Stanford um, chief among them. The, the, whole, the whole gig gets kicked off in many ways by a report that's uh, given to Franklin Roosevelt in 1945 that's authored by a M- uh, MIT engineer named Vannevar Bush, who'd been uh, Roosevelt's chief science advisor during the war. Um, and the report was titled Science, the Endless Frontier. And it mm-hmm. makes a case that the U.S. government should get into the research and development business in a permanent way, mm-hmm. that it shouldn't just be a wartime Manhattan Project era experiment, but that science was where the economy needed to go. It was going to be the basis of the new economy, was going to be the basis of new sort of educated human capital. And this frontier mythology has been very, very you know, persistent. And it pops up again and again and again in Silicon Valley, kind of this idea of pioneers and the metaphor of the metaphors of the American West, kind of the frontier West, the John Wayne style West abound throughout Silicon Valley history. Um, Up until this day, of course, that whole John Wayne style American frontier was one that erases Mm. the indigenous people whose land it was and who were occupying right. it there was never an empty you know manifest destiny was mm. not a ma- was not a matter of going into the vast emptiness of the west which is the way that right. that um, anglo-americans characterized it from the mid-19th century forward of course it involved violence it involved displacement and it also was um, you know the pioneers themselves were able to do what they were able to do whether they be 19th century homesteaders or 20th century electrical engineers because of government support and spending mm-hmm. <laughs> that gov- that public policy created this infrastructure. My, the metaphor I like to use is a sandbox mm. that it creates kind of the wooden box itself and then puts a lot of sand in and then allows people to go in and build sandcastles and throw sand at each other and do all these sorts of things. And so it gives a sort of a degree of independence, but creates this incredible container in which people are allowed to build and create. Yeah, absolutely. And your book shows how that initial kind of openness and freedom and liberation in the space of kind of innovation around the internet did, you know, lead to some of the innovation, but it's also what is the exact thing that's gotten us into these traps nowadays. And I guess just kind of to follow up on that, Margaret, it's one of the, it seems to me that kind of one of the main claims of your book is about how the story of Silicon Valley is kind of an only in America story. And just to read a quote from you here, you write that even though every other industrialized nation has tried in some form to mimic its entrepreneurial alchemy, that is Silicon Valley's, even though its companies have spread their connective tissue and disruptive power across the globe, it is an only in America story. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners, what are some of the features of kind of the Silicon Valley, quote unquote, success story that feel distinctly Mm -hmm. American? Yeah, well, one of the arguments that I, what I try, the story I try to show in the book is how, um, how Silicon Valley, rather than being kind of a think different, set aside, separate story from the main narrative of American history, um, it's quite intertwined. I mean, I, I think, and it has to do with the way, not only the government funding of the valley of, of, of particularly, um, electronics and then computer 
hardware and software industries. Well, not software, it wasn't really an industry yet, but the computer and, and electronics industries in the 50s and 60s um, is, is foundational. But it's not just that the money flowed in and man, there was a lot of it, like right. not just the Pentagon, but then the space program, which, right. you know, shooting the moon was a Cold War project too. And mm. what do you need to send a rocket to the moon? You need a very, you need very small, very fast, very light electronic devices. You need microchips mm. and integrated circuits. Who makes those? These little companies in, in Northern California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so you have this incredible kind of, I mean, I refer to sort of the federal government as effectively functioning as the first great venture capitalist right, yeah, of the industry. One. But it's but the money real what's really important, because look, lots of other countries around the world have spent lots of money on science and tech and, yeah. and spend proportionately more as a proportion of GDP than mm. the US does now. It's the way the money flowed indirectly. Mm. And this has to do with American federalism, American dislike of big government, which has been there since the founding. Look, mm-hmm. the US was founded by overthrowing a monarch and you know, mm-hmm. we don't like central authority. We don't like bigness. Right. It was reaching a crescendo in the early 50s. What else was going on in the early 50s? Well, that was the McCarthy era. Like, White <laughs> Eisenhower is not going to be like, oh, I'm going to build this massive science complex that's all housed within the government. Nope. He's going to send contracts to private industry. He's going to send contracts to private and public universities. Mm. It's going to be this decentralized network. And in decentralizing it and privatizing it, the government builds the industry, but does it in a way that makes many of the people in it feel like they did it on their own. Mm. And that actually is part of the secret. It, it's yeah. in, in a way the the kind of the myth, the myths <laughs> that that the valley and the tech industry believe about themselves are actually part of the secret of their success. Mm. And and giving and giving room for a very entrepreneurial, intensely competitive industry to grow, um, giving opportunity. I think one of the big component parts of this Only America story is the massive investment that happened starting with the GI Bill, continuing mm. in the post-war period in higher education yeah. and in human capital. And this incredible escalator of mobility. I was really st- struck when I first started researching the book and I started sitting down with these octogenarian venture capitalists who are you know, have made, done very well for themselves Mm -hmm. to realize that almost to a man, and they were all men, that's, I'll get to that in a minute, um, (laughs) were, they started in very modest circumstances. They were not Ivy Leaguers. They were not prep school kids. If they did that and you're coming of age in the 50s and early 60s, you stay on the East Coast and you go work for a Fortune 50 company. You go work at, you know, your father's bank. You you don't like hitch a ride, go all the way out to Palo Alto, California, where there's like almost nothing going on. There's <laughs> yeah. one bar, there are a bunch of fruit trees, there's one university that's on the make, but it's not the hub, you know, right. it, it, by any means. And so this post-war prosperity enables them to have a f- free or almost free education, whether they're paying $50 at the University of California, Berkeley, per, you know, $50 per semester, or they're getting a scholarship at, you know, Rice for an undergrad and they're coming to Stanford for their master's and they're working or they're going to school at night and working at Lockheed during the day to pay for their education. Right. They are not coming from money. And look, they are all, they're all white. They're all male. It is, yeah. you know, it is the, it is the fifties and sixties. And I think that also sets in these patterns of who, who the winners are and who gets to pick the winners of the next generation that persist to this day. But basically this, you know, this investment that, that the United States made at the national level and at the state level 
in this post-war period, enabled by kind of a unique set of circumstances, including not having significant international competition <laughs> at the, yeah. you know, right after World War II, was extraordinary in terms of creating this these immense opportunities for people to seize. And if you were in the right place at the right time and you were the right demographic, you had incredible opportunity before you. And what I like to think about is, okay, how do we do a 2.0 version of that in the 21st century mm-hmm. that is still, you know, creating this escalator of mobility, but doing it in a way that enlarges who gets to be part of it. Right, right. Yeah, Meredith, I'm wondering if that resonates with anything that you've observed either from first working in the industry and now, uh, you know, studying it as a journalist. I would be perfectly happy to accept a river of money uh, in order to <laughs> do innovative things. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there, Margaret. I'm in board with your vision, and I will volunteer. Let's do it. Uh, yeah. Volunteer as tribute. I think the other thing that's that's kind of in play, particularly in the last um, sort of notable in the last sort of most recent generation of of tech is, first of all, there's just such staggering successes rewarded, not just by money from funders, right. but by money, you know, you yeah. kind of, you do, like these people become so wealthy. And I think about the founders and the age of the founders when they hit, hit it big, right? Yeah. Zuckerberg's, you know, starts Facebook when he's 19 and by, you know, within a couple of years, he's turning away billion dollar offers and kind of getting incredible validation. And same thing with um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. You know, they're graduate students at Stanford, and they are, you know, they get this twenty-five million dollar seed round from the two biggest VC companies in the Valley, um, who agree to go halvesies because they want in on this incredible product that they have. And they're in their twenties too, and they, you know, and and so I think about what if I had become wildly successful <laughs> or become a billionaire when I was twenty-three. Um, I think it would have been very, very hard to evolve my worldview or expand it from there, right? Um, you end up in a state of arrested development because of your incredible success. I mean, I'm glad that I'm not thinking the same way I did when I was 23. Oh, <laughs> I've, gosh, I've learned yeah. a lot since then. Um, and I, th- and, but there's also, I think, you know, just being told you're brilliant and being told you don't need to know anything else. I think one of the hallmarks of Silicon Valley culture is it's, antipathy towards politics and bureaucrats and mm-hmm. kind of Washington, D.C. and kind of just really, yes, they give these folks money and they, you know, there's obviously, and I chronicle, chronicle this in the book extensively, there's a very long, the path between D.C. and Silicon Valley is very right. well trod and has been forever. But the kind of attitude is, you know, kind of falls into two camps. One is the techno-libertarian Really, government should just vanish, go to the vanishing point, and we should right. just replace everything else with, you know, privatized um, our own, you know, our own systems. Let's go seasteading and let's have drones and th- all those things. And then the other camp thinks, okay, government is a good, but government is so messed up. And really what government needs is some Silicon Valley thinking to improve it. Mm-hmm. And we saw this a lot in the Obama administration where you had a very, like the path between particularly the Google campus and the White House become very, became very well trod. <laughs> and Washington lawmakers of both parties have been very receptive and kind of bought into that argument of, mm-hmm. We kind of do it wrong and Silicon Valley does it so much better. Mm. And that again validates this 
the kind of pretty narrow worldview of, of folks who have been trained, you know, exclusively in engineering programs, who have achieved success, whether it be kind of a blockbuster success as a founder, but even just becoming very financially comfortable and successful at an early age because you are a full stack engineer hmm. and you're in demand. Um, and I think about it as my students, you know, it, you know, it's, it's hard to be a history major and to convince people that, you know, you're choosing that over something else. Everyone at University of Washington, you know, wants to be a computer scientist. And if they can't, they try to get in other disciplines that kind of sound like, you know, I, I think, you know, students will choose poli sci over history because there's science in the, in the, right, in the right. title. And, and look, they're just looking after, they're doing what society, society's cues have told them to do, right? Yeah. It's like, and, and you see where the rewards are. Right, right. Uh, but this has created a really, really imbalanced system. We've sort of pushed so hard right. in the favor of, um, of this sort of technologically driven world. And now we're having this reckoning very, right. very quickly. And we're realizing how much our systems are kind of all skewed in one direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Siva Vaidyanathan, who we had on earlier, he his kind of theory about Mark Zuckerberg, which I think is really interesting, is not necessarily that he's evil, but he's just sort of profoundly like naive and sort of ignorant about, you know, everything other than software. And right. And when you build tools and you have no real kind of curiosity about how society works and how power certainly works among humans and within human societies, then it's not surprising that we get to where we are now. So, I mean, it does make me think I definitely, one thing that I think has been kind of exciting, we've been publishing some interviews in public books with um, Donna Riley and Virginia Eubanks who work in technology and, and they're, you know, they're talking about the way that kind of engineering education is starting to change, I think in really good ways. You know, there seems to be a more widespread recognition that the folks who have the talent and the you know, to be building these systems do need to kind of have more awareness about, you know, things that we get from the humanities and the social sciences. So I'm curious about where you see um, glimmers of hope and exciting new paths for the future in the areas that you study. So maybe, Meredith, for you kind of in the realm of, of actually building these technologies, what is making you feel a little more optimistic these days? Uh, I am very excited about the uh, proliferation of data ethics courses and the, mm. uh, the dialogue about ethics in computer science. The Association of Computing Machinery, uh, which is the big uh, kind of trade organization for computer science, in the past couple of years rewrote their code of ethics for mm. the first time since the early 90s. Now, right, things yeah. have changed a little bit since the early 90s. And I feel like, all right, better late than never. Like, I'm glad that it happened. It probably should have happened earlier, but I'm glad that it happened. So I am glad that people are starting to talk about fairness mm. and embedding fairness into computational systems. I think that the conversation should be about justice, not mm. just about fairness. One of the examples I like to use is the difference between social fairness and mathematical fairness. Mm. And you can think about this when you think about a cookie. So when there's only one cookie left and you have two children, you know that there's going to be a fight over who gets the cookie, right? <laughs> so yeah. the computer would solve this problem by saying, okay, each child gets 50% of the cookie, and that's mm. fair. But I know that when I was little, and 
there was only one cookie left and my little brother and I both wanted the cookie. <laughs> uh, we would break the cookie in half and it didn't break exactly at 50%. There was a big half and a little half. And so then there would be a negotiation. And right. I would say to my little brother, okay, you give me the big half of the cookie and I will let you pick the TV show that we watch after dinner tonight. Mm. And my brother would say, okay, yes, that's fair. <laughs> so that social fairness is mm. different than mathematical fairness. Right. And so when we're using computers to as the intermediaries in social decisions, it's right. not always enough to do what's mathematically fair. We should also think about what's socially fair. And if we can't make computer systems that do socially fair decisions, maybe we don't use computer systems at all which is kind of a radical suggestion, or people take it as a radical suggestion. I don't take it as a very radical suggestion. I mean, that's how we've done stuff in the past. And you know, so we just need to be judicious about when we do and do not use technology. We need to think about what is just in addition to what is fair. Uh, and there's also a documentary that is coming out soon that's on the festival circuit right mm. now called Coded Bias. Hmm. Uh, by Shalini Kantaya, uh, that is a documentary about Joy Bolomini and her fight against facial recognition. Mm. Uh, so I guess I would also put this in my in my optimism column. Yeah, that there is a movement to ban facial recognition technology right. because of the racial bias that right. is embedded in this technology and the fact that these that technologies like facial recognition a don't work really well and b are disproportionately weaponized against communities of color and poor communities right and until and unless it works for everybody in a way that is just right we shouldn't use this technology right uh, I will also uh, go back to our conversation about self-driving cars. Mm. Uh, people often get frustrated when I say that self-driving cars are a terrible idea and they're never going to work. And they say, oh, I can't, isn't there anything you like about the <laughs> idea of a robot car? For some reason, it's very upsetting. Uh, so here's what I can get behind. I can get behind self-driving tractors. Oh, okay. Because in the field... Yeah. There's nobody There's for really the tractor to <laughs> run over and right. kill. Right, right. Maybe some animals, but maybe we can keep them penned up somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. But it's yeah, a far less distracting I'm pretty sure that we could train a self-driving yeah. car to avoid a cow. Yes. <laughs> That's a great way to think about it. Um, yeah, you have a line toward the end of your book that I love, which is where you just say, you know, it's humans are the point, right? We're doing all of this to help humans and to serve humans. And it's so easy to kind of forget that and get so lost in technology. And I just, it's so simple, yet it's so easy to forget. And I love that. Um, and so, Margaret, what, where do you see glimmers of hope these days in this kind of Silicon um, Valley economy? I see glimmers of hope in the conversation about 
exclusion and bias and institutional discrimination mm. in the tech in in tech and in the platforms and products right. that it's created. And yes, it's a conversation and yes, the needle is moving slowly, but the conversation that's evolved over the last several years was one that was not happening at all before really mm. in a way that was or at least not happening. It was happening in academic circles. There was people who have been doing the work for a really long time. Yeah. But it's kind of reach this kind of burst out into the public consciousness in a way that is quite different. And it's having reverberations politically, you know, where, you know, in late July, there was hearing antitrust hearing on Capitol Hill, you know, four of the the big CEOs came and were grilled. And it was not just, you know, hearings, a hearing is a hearing, and it's kind of political theatrics, but the substance of the questions that they were being asked, and the kind of general vibe that was mm-hmm. pretty hostile um, yeah. coming from both parties for different reasons right. was so different. So I see, um, I see the conversation has changed and I, I think we need to recognize that, that that's, that's meaningful. It reminds me a little bit. I'm thinking about the early sixties and I'm thinking about a series of books that were published that became bestsellers like Silent Spring, Rachel Carson. Mm. Yeah. Which really becomes the kind of tipping point for the modern environmental movement. I'm thinking about Ralph Nader, Unsafe at Any Speed, <laughs> about right, car right. safe, traffic safety. And these, and I think the work that people are doing, the work that scholars like Meredith are doing, not taking the technologist at their word, but instead pushing back. Right. I see that as hopeful. And I see that as hopeful, not in a, oh, finally we get to blow them up and tear it all down. They're evil. I think it's a way of holding, we're holding these incredibly powerful companies accountable. Mm. These companies are filled with incredibly talented people who, you know, genuinely, I know it's kind of seems cheesy now, but I think they generally, you know, people do want to change the world for the better. (laughs) And, you know, those of us on the outside are like, well, it's not really working out the way expected. But there has been... There is a lot of that is good they have brought into the world, um, or, or there are things that have been generative. Um, and so how do we harness that energy and kind of have a really more honest and meaningful conversation about we are, we are in a tech saturated world. The internet is with us. The internet's not going mm. away. Um, so what do we do in right. order to move forward? And so I do, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about, oh, we're now we're talking about diversity. So, you know, problem solved. No, that's not it. But I've been struck really since, you know, starting perhaps, I guess it was, well, 2012 was the Ellen Powell case, the discrimination case, gender discrimination case against Kleiner Perkins, the big venture capital firm. That kind of started, that started this conversation about women in tech, which then in kind of the post-2016 moment snowballed into this much bigger conversation. And all Mm. of the work of the scholars who've been working on this stuff for so long suddenly gets amplified and lifted up. New work adds to it. And, uh, you know, you can no longer have these unalloyed conversations about, oh, Silicon Valley changing the world. Yeah, rock on, which really were pretty prevalent not too long ago. Yeah, you know, you totally. don't have to go too far back in history to find a lot of people, you know, people just uncritically repeating, you know, this is this is going to get us where we need to go and all we need is better technology and voila. And so this is necessary and important and I I see I'm made hopeful by it. Yeah, that's great. I I think I'm definitely encouraged by the conversations kind of what like what you were mentioning about these deeper structural issues that right go far back before the internet and um you know having to do with with capitalism <laughs> and um it's maybe not enough to just keep kind of tinkering right at the edges and it's interesting to see people you know both of your work and uh like Wendy Liu's abolish silicon valley which is which is you know kind of 
presents some of the more radical ideas about about this. And it's great to just have a bunch of different approaches to it. I think the more disciplines that get involved, the better. So that's really great. So I think that sounds like a really good place to end. So I want to thank both of you so much for being here. It's just been a huge treat to have both of you here together. Thank you. This was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And that's our season. Many thanks to Meredith Broussard and Margaret O'Mara for sharing their research into the history and the possible futures of the tech economy. Margaret and Meredith have contributed essays and interviews to public books, so you can find those pieces and more of their work at publicbooks.org podcast. And please be sure to check out our internet reading list and discussion questions. I'll put a link to that webpage in the show notes here and at publicbooks.org podcast. I'm excited to say that we have more seasons of Public Books 101 currently in development. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. If you rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts, I will be forever grateful as it helps others discover the show. You can follow us at Public Books on Twitter and Facebook, where we will announce our upcoming seasons as they come to be. Thank you so very much for giving your time and attention to this show. In the attention economy, as we have learned, it is not easy to focus for this long. Thanks again. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced by me, Annie Galvin, with production assistance from Jess Engebretson and Kelly Dean McKinney. It was edited by Jess Engebretson. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton. Special thanks to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project and to the Mellon Foundation and the American Council of Learned Societies where I am a public fellow. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you next time in our next season of Public Books 101. I'm just going to pause for one second because I realize I have these earrings on, and I think they might be like banging against my phone. So just (laughs) sorry, one second. Um, It's such a bummer, isn't it? Like whenever I go into the studio and I'm like, oh, I'm wearing hoops, I'm like looking all cute. And (laughs) they're terrible for recording.